Welcome to Skim This. Fun fact, 2021 is halfway over. But while the last six months were probably better than the first six months of 2020, things are far from perfect. Parts of the U.S. have been baking under extreme heat. A high-rise fell down despite multiple safety warnings. A COVID variant is wreaking havoc around the world. And even the job market is wacky. It's a lot, but we promise we're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Before we get into this week's top story, we just want to note this story mentioned sexual assault, which could be triggering to some listeners. On Wednesday, Bill Cosby was released from prison. In 2018, he was found guilty of aggravated indecent assault for drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constant. He was supposed to serve a three to 10 year sentence. But yesterday, after only two years, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court ordered Cosby to be released. To get some context on what happened and why this sudden release was surprising to a lot of people, we phoned up Fatima Gossgraves. She's the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center and one of the co-founders of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. Starting off, I would love to just ask you to break down why Bill Cosby was released from prison. Well, the first thing I should say, it was a highly unusual opinion that came out of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And so in some ways, I wonder if this opinion will end up applying to Bill Cosby and only Bill Cosby going forward. But what the court basically said was that the prosecutor in the case had made the sort of promises to Bill Cosby that led him to believe he could never be prosecuted. And then subsequently prosecuting him and using information that had been revealed in a civil case, that that violated his due process rights under the Constitution. You know, sometimes prosecutors will come up with an agreement that says, I won't prosecute you on this issue. So people understand that. There was no written agreement, but there was a press release and the prosecutor made suggestions that Bill Cosby probably wouldn't be prosecuted. I have to say it is odd to suggest that those sorts of loose and non-enforceable promises bind Bill Cosby from being prosecuted around this specific case. But that's basically what the court said. Yeah, frankly, that was the part that confused me the most yesterday. It almost feels like a pinky promise And I didn't know that that was, this is like a legal version of a pinky promise. It is a legal version of a pinky promise. And usually pinky promises don't get you very much in the criminal justice system. So that's why I feel like it's a Bill Crosby rule that is applying here. I don't think we're going to see an expansion of the pinky promise rule. You've mentioned that this feels like it's the Bill Cosby rule. When you think about the broader impact of what happened yesterday on other sexual assault cases, what comes to mind? The thing that is weighing on me is whether survivors will see this very high profile case and think, why would I ever do it? Why would I ever tell my story? Why would I ever count on a system that doesn't really serve me well? Uh, And and the truth is they're not wrong to believe our systems don't serve survivors well because they don't, right? So I have deep, deep worries about the message, the public message that has been sent. I have worries about the cultural conversation. I saw, you know, celebrities on Twitter celebrating Bill Cosby's release. It was just so gross in the face of the 60 people who have very similar allegations. I think a lot of people associate 
Bill Cosby and specifically his conviction as a major milestone for what is kind of broadly known as the Me Too movement. You know, in your mind, when you think about the cultural message, like, what is your deep fear as it relates to broader justice for survivors? You know, the Me Too movement has never been about one powerful or even a handful of powerful individuals seeing accountability. Um, It has been about survivors supporting survivors. I mean, that is the thrust of Me Too. That very act of saying Me Too sort of encircles people and lets them know that it, it could be okay and that collectively we can drive change. And so what I did see yesterday and what I hope to see in the coming days is survivors surrounding the Cosby survivors saying, we're here for you. We're fighting for something different. And that's the hope and promise in me too. It's why I do this work as well. I'm super focused on what it is we can do going forward so that the next generation and the next generation has very different experiences. All right, let's get to a few headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... Breaking news in Washington, the Supreme Court's ruling in a major voting right case. Here's what went down. This morning, the Supreme Court issued a major judgment about voting rights. This case involved two voting laws in Arizona. The first says that ballots cast in the wrong precinct on Election Day can't be counted, and the other restricts who can collect ballots to deliver to polling places. The Democratic National Committee said, hold up, these practices disproportionately harm minority voters in Arizona, like members of the Native American community who often live far away from polling stations. The DNC's lawsuit also claimed that by enacting these voter laws, Arizona was violating the Federal Voting Rights Act, which prohibits racial discrimination in voting laws. But in a 6-3 vote on Thursday, the Supreme said, actually, these laws are legal. And the impact of their decision goes way beyond just Arizona. At least 14 states have already passed laws that restrict voting access, and this SCOTUS ruling could make it harder to challenge those restrictions in court. Analysts also say this ruling could dilute the Voting Rights Act because it makes it harder for voters of color to prove that certain factors like distance or unreliable mail service makes it harder for them to vote. Next up. As people get ready to gather for 4th of July, that extreme heat is baking both coasts right now and turning deadly with more record-breaking temperatures on the way. Here's what you need to know. It's been topping 90 degrees this week across the Northeast. But we felt less like complaining when we saw the Pacific Northwest experience one of its most severe heat waves ever. Towns throughout Washington and Oregon broke their all-time temperature records. Roads literally buckled in Portland, and the city had to stop running its streetcars after cables started melting. One town in British Columbia reached 121 degrees Fahrenheit, the hottest temperature on record for Canada. So what pushed temperatures up this week? Apparently, something called a heat dome, which is when hot air gets trapped by the atmosphere and starts to pile up over a certain area, kind of like putting a lid on a saucepan when you're cooking. The good news is heat domes typically only last a few days to a week. The bad news? The Pacific Northwest is not equipped to handle them. Way fewer homes have AC, and the heat has sent hundreds of people to the hospital. And because conditions in the region are normally so different, there's more risk of wildfires. 
And the scariest part? As a result of climate change, heat domes are becoming more frequent. So even though this heat dome may be an outlier, this likely isn't the last time you'll hear about one. All right, let's end on a good note. Walmart says it will begin selling its own private label insulin this week. Here's the context. This is kind of a big deal. About 10% of American adults have diabetes, and the price of insulin, the hormone used to manage diabetes, which most people produce naturally, has more than doubled in recent years. Enter Walmart, pulling a reverse Martin Screlly. The retail giant started selling insulin this week for just over $70 per vial. That's way below the $300 that other manufacturers like Eli Lilly charge. This news sounds like a step in the right direction, especially for diabetes patients who often pay thousands of dollars out of pocket each year. But for now, it's too soon to tell if any other expensive drugs are about to see some much-needed price competition. By now, you've probably heard about the Champlain Towers condominium, the 12-story building in Surfside, Florida that collapsed suddenly last week. This story has made a lot of us wonder, who's supposed to make sure our buildings are safe in the first place? And what do we have the right to know about the buildings we live in? We'll answer that in a second. But first, what went wrong in Surfside? We should start by saying the Champlain Towers in Surfside are condo buildings. People there own their individual units. And when it comes to paying for building repairs, that's where a homeowners association, or HOA, steps in. Many HOAs have elected boards. It's like the student government of condo buildings, though in this case, a lot more important. In 2018, the Champlain Towers HOA paid for a report on the condition of the building. That report seems to indicate that there may have been some warning signs about the building that fell down. That included major structural damage and abundant cracking in concrete beams in the parking garage. There was also evidence of concrete damage on the building's balconies and underneath its pool deck. And the report said fixes were necessary for the 40-year-old building. Since that initial report, the HOA told condo owners to pay for repairs, we're going to need everyone to chip in. And chip in a lot. Reportedly, $80,000 for one-bedroom units or several hundred thousand dollars for larger ones. And when condo owners heard about that, many were angry. They said they couldn't afford the repairs. Three years of arguing back and forth with the HOA ensued. And over that time, the cost of repairs actually just went up as damage got worse. Tragically, construction to fix some of those problems was finally about to begin when the building collapsed, with the first payments from condo owners actually due today. Now, some reporters have pointed out this pattern in which HOA boards need to convince condo owners to pay for necessary repairs is a scary one. One local radio reporter told Slate that's because it puts the short-term incentives of board members to get reelected at odds with the long-term importance of paying to make necessary repairs. This story has a lot of people asking, what does this mean for the safety of my condo building? And we should point out, there are a lot of condos run by HOAs in Florida. But what about the rest of us renters? To get some answers, we called up Kate Walls, the senior staff attorney for the National Housing Law Project. What rights do we have as residents to know about the safety of the buildings that we live in? It depends on how much authority that local government has over private property management. 
First, obviously, property owners are responsible. Management agents are responsible to ensure that their buildings are safe. But it's also oftentimes a responsibility of local governments to ensure that a property owner is maintaining the building in such a way that is compliance with building and property maintenance codes. The conversations I've had with a lot of my friends are like, is my building going to fall down? Do you think people should be trusting the system? If it's purely private housing, you're going to have to then try to get the information from your property owner. I think if you have a concern about the structural integrity of your property, reach out to local government to see what information they may have. Usually on a local government's website, there is a form that you fill out and you say, I I want the building code records and property maintenance records for my building. Wall says there are things we can look out for ourselves that might be worth raising to building management, like chipping paint, mold, or anything that visibly needs repair in our homes. Though building experts we've seen quoted in the last few days say one thing to watch out for that can really cause some serious damage is water. So if you spot new water damage in your building, that's probably something worth pointing out too. And if and when it comes to paying for those types of repairs? The owner and management agent should be responsible for those repairs. Early intervention generally leads to the ability to improve and maintain a property for the long term. If it sounds a little far-fetched that your landlord is going to be proactively paying for repairs, Wall says that's a reason the relationship between landlords and tenants could use an overhaul. There needs to be a balance in the landlord-tenant relationship. I think some property owners see this as some sort of feudal relationship that goes back many centuries, rather than a negotiation of a contractual agreement where the tenant agrees to pay the rent and abide by the lease terms, and the landlord agrees to maintain the property and to ensure that the tenant has a base set of rights and protections. And so if we can get to that place as a nation, I think in the long run, that antagonism between landlords and tenants will be reduced. Sometimes you see a headline, and it's all you have time to read before going back to work or to bed. But when the topic is really important, like life or death important with COVID, headlines don't really tell the full story. So wouldn't it be nice if you could just call up a doctor friend and be like, Hey, did you guys read that thing in The New Yorker last month about how golf... I read somewhere. I think it was an NPR. Did you read that thing in Mother Jones about... I I read somewhere that... Did you read that thing that guy wrote in the sand on the beach? Yeah! Luckily for us, we have that doctor friend, Dr. Vanessa Carey. She's an acting physician at Mass General Hospital and the CEO of Seed Global Health. So the first headline I want to read you is from NBC News, and it says, Delta variant threatens plans to lift pandemic restrictions across the world. What is the Delta variant? What do we know about it? And which places is it really affecting the most right now? Viruses just are designed to mutate. If a virus gets more effective at being uh, transmissible, 
it does a better job of spreading to more people. And the Delta variant is one that has proved itself to basically be at least 50% more infectious than other forms of the virus. And what that means is it'll be easier for you to get it walking past someone, easier for you to get it if you're indoors with somebody who's infected. And so that's number one. Number two, There is some growing data that is telling us that it is more likely to at least hospitalize you, if not actually cause death, if you are unvaccinated. And the reason why it's a risk to sort of the globe, as well as to our pandemic lifting measures in the United States, is that at least in the United States, there's still huge pockets of the population that are unvaccinating, included our children. And so the risk of that, obviously, is that COVID can spread among these communities and could cause surges in places where there's a high level of unvaccinated vaccinated people, cause more hospitalizations and cause more death. Globally, the story is very different. There is a huge number of countries that have received no vaccine or have less than 1% of their population that are vaccinated. Countries where we work with Seed Global Health, we work in Sub-Saharan Africa, partnering with governments to train doctors, nurses, and midwives. And in those countries, there's negligible percentage of the population that's vaccinated. In fact, not all the healthcare workers have been vaccinated. And so, To say that Delta is threatening the reopening of the world is true because much of the world's not vaccinated and this variant is spreading like wildfire. So this is from the Wall Street Journal, and it's Delta variant outbreak in Israel infects some vaccinated adults. Now, we know that Israel has a lot of their population vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine, which is also a vaccine available in the United States. What do we know about the Delta variant and whether the COVID vaccines we have here in the U.S. are effective against it? So the primary vaccines we've been using in the United States are the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a single dose. If you are double vaccinated or you've gotten both shots of vaccine or you're fully vaccinated with Pfizer and Moderna, they're still incredibly protected against Delta. But it's important to realize there is a small drop in the efficacy of these vaccines. So for the strains of COVID that were pre-Delta, Moderna and Pfizer were above 90% effective at preventing infection and almost entirely effective against preventing death and hospitalization. And the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was about 60% effective. The problem with the Delta variant is that these vaccines seem to perform a little bit differently against it. The data is not out yet on Johnson & Johnson. The good news is if you've had both shots, it's about 88% protective for Pfizer. We've every reason to believe that Moderna and the studies are still out, but the early results from Moderna studies indicate the same. While the vaccines are still incredibly effective against Delta virus after both shots, unfortunately, after only one shot, it's only about 33% effective. This is another headline from CNBC. The COVID Delta variant has exploded in the UK, and it could be a blueprint for the U.S., I'm curious what you're expecting to see when the Delta variant does become the dominant strain here in the U.S. The jury's out, right? Because I don't know how people are going to choose to behave over the next months. Only about 47% of our population is fully vaccinated. So the reality is that where there's high percentages of people who are unvaccinated, we are going to see surges. The good news is the U.S. is enough vaccinated that we will not likely return to where we were, right? Those big surges that we saw after the holidays. I mean, Thanksgiving and Christmas was horrific. And I don't think we will ever go back there. But you have to ask, who is going to be you know, the last person to die of COVID. We have something that is preventable. As we look at this surge, we individually can help control how this goes. Leadership can make policies that can help protect us better. 
So I am worried that as we get into fatigue around this, people are going to make poor decisions that are going to put people at risk. The good news is I think the worst is over in the U.S., but that doesn't mean that we don't have some hard times ahead. And Delta can still infect people who are vaccinated. And the worry here to remember, and I'm not trying to be alarmist, this is just the reality of science and viruses, is that there is going to be, if we don't really get ourselves vaccinated enough, there will be a variant that will evade the vaccines and then we're going to hit reset. And that will be an incredibly difficult reality when we've already endured so much. This is a headline from The Hill, and it's the CDC director says vaccinated people are safe from the Delta variant and they don't need to wear masks. How should our audience be thinking through when they should be wearing a mask, if they should be wearing a mask, if they're vaccinated? So I think the data would show us from studies, Dr. Walensky is right. If you are vaccinated and you're with other unvaccinated people, you do not necessarily need to wear a mask. You are well protected. And the data indicates that if you've had the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine and you're more than two weeks out from your vaccination. The reason that I think there's a push for the mask mandate is that one, you don't know if other people are vaccinated and you could still run the risk of getting infected from an unvaccinated person. I choose to wear one in part with solidarity with my children who are still masked in an indoor setting. So I I think that you're going to see, unfortunately, a little bit of divide on how people choose to do this. And LA really said they were asking people to put masks on in an indoor setting because they did have significant pockets of people who are unvaccinated and it created a norm that would protect those people. So if you are fully vaccinated, I think you just have to make a judgment about, do you know everybody? But I think that as we model what it means to get on the other side of this pandemic and some of the public health measures that we have that we know work, which are masks and hand washing. It's, I think, important just from a place of solidarity also. And as we go into the unmasked places to think about how we can be a part of a community that is protecting one another. Dr. Carey, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Wherever you end up this 4th of July weekend, whether you're staying in the city, heading back to your hometown or hitting the road, Keep an eye out for help wanted signs. You won't have a hard time spotting them. Hiring, hiring, hiring. Now hiring signs are popping up all over. 9,286,000 job openings. For everything from engineers to shift work. But there are few takers as millions of jobs go unfilled. Skimming what's going on with the labor market isn't easy. So we're going to break down what's happening by answering three questions. First, how many job openings are there right now? Second, why aren't these jobs being filled? And third, what's being done to get people back to work? All right, let's start by crunching the numbers. There are an estimated 9 million job openings in the U.S., and this number may take a while to go down. The most recent government data available shows that in April, 4 million Americans quit their jobs. They weren't laid off. They'd just had enough. And while people are quitting jobs in a lot of different industries, some are getting hit the hardest. In April alone, 741,000 Americans left jobs in leisure and hospitality, aka jobs in hotels and restaurants. That could explain why the service you used to love at your favorite restaurant might be a bit underwhelming right now, or why the food doesn't taste how it used to. More than half a million Americans also quit jobs in retail in April, 
which might explain why clothes aren't getting refolded or why there's no one tidying up fitting rooms. The retail industry and the hospitality industry are well aware of this trend, and they're trying to hire like crazy. In an April survey, the U.S. government found more than 1.3 million job openings at hotels and restaurants, and almost a million in retail. And this week, the job website Indeed published its June Job Seeker survey and found that since April, the number of job openings in the U.S. has most likely gone up. So that's a quick snapshot of the labor market right now. But let's talk about what's causing so many jobs to go unfilled. You may remember that last year, there was near-record unemployment, and now it seems like people are choosing to be unemployed. So what's going on here? The U.S. government doesn't exactly do exit interviews with everyone who quits their job, but researchers at Indeed have tried to do just that. One explanation you may have heard is that when politicians increased unemployment benefits in response to the pandemic, you could make more money sitting on the couch and not working. This explanation is all over cable news. If you pay people not to work, they're probably not going to work. People are getting paid more to stay home. There's a big incentive to stay home now. Why are we paying people to stay home? But according to Indeed, that unemployment argument doesn't really tell the full story. When Indeed asked unemployed people who were not urgently looking for work why that was, the top reason was COVID fears. This was especially true for workers without college degrees. According to the Federal Reserve of San Francisco, those workers are more likely to end up in jobs requiring lots of person-to-person contact, like in retail or in restaurants. The next two most common reasons unemployed people cited for not urgently looking for work were that their spouse was employed or they had a financial cushion. As we've talked about before, a number of Americans have emerged from a year and a half of COVID and found, whoa, I actually saved some money. For others, using their savings to buy some extra time to find the right job might be exactly why they saved in the first place. And finally, another reason Indeed found Americans are passing on new jobs is that they're busy caring for someone else. Whether it's finding someone to look after elderly parents or finding daycare, Caring for loved ones in the U.S. can be really expensive, and those costs have only gone up during the pandemic. Because of that, a number of Americans may have realized it makes more financial sense to become a caretaker than it does to pay someone to do that. According to Indeed, around 10% of people out of a job cited unemployment payments as a reason they're not urgently looking for work. But around twice as many people cited COVID fears, their spouse's job, their financial cushion, or their care responsibilities as a factor. So there's hardly just one reason Americans aren't rushing back to work. And that brings us to our final question as we try to make sense of all those help-wanted signs around the country. With so many Americans sitting out of the labor market for a variety of reasons, what's being done to try to change that? $1,000 educational scholarships for certain workers. Now we're doing $200 after they've completed six weeks of work. Employees for Omni Hotels can get a signing bonus and three free nights at a hotel of their choice. A lot of businesses aren't just hanging up help wanted signs. They're making it very clear how much they're willing to pay to fill those jobs. Our team, which is spread out around the country, has spotted signs for $15 an hour workers at grocery stores, fast food restaurants, and public pools. 
Other businesses are giving new hires an iPhone if they stay for six months or paying them hundreds or even thousands of dollars in signing bonuses. A recent survey by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce found that $1,000 bonuses might be the best perk to convince unemployed people to swipe right on a job. So that extra cash could have an impact. The other things workers are looking for might be a bit more difficult to provide, like work-from-home perks, vaccine mandates, or childcare support. Another thing that could have a big impact but that's not too easy to pull off is training potentially millions of Americans for new jobs that pay better. A recent survey by Prudential found that a majority of Americans would retrain for a career in a different field. So maybe what the labor market needs is a sorting hat for jobs. But organizing retraining programs takes time and usually involves the government. So it could be a while until the most important reasons people are staying out of the workforce are taken off the table. And it's not just businesses trying to get people back to work. 10 states just stopped giving out an extra $300 a week in unemployment payments. Now, around half of U.S. states are done or almost done paying out that pandemic bonus. And early data suggests that's having some effect in getting people back to work. But as we've all learned over the last year, making decisions about our careers and balancing all of our responsibilities is complicated. So while ending pandemic unemployment payments is a quick and easy policy shift to push some Americans back into jobs, getting back to what feels like a normal job market is going to take a lot longer. If Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway with help from Peter Bonaventure. The Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. Skim.